This is the Nairobi Ideas Podcast, a podcast that gives a public platform to the Africans who are changing the world with their big ideas. I am your host, Joyce Simio of the Mawazo Institute. In this season, we have been tackling climate change where we have been discussing activism, initiatives, and other measures to mitigate climate change. In this episode of the podcast, we are going to be tackling climate change and food security. To begin with, what is food security and why does it matter? Food security means having at all times both physical and economic access to sufficient food to meet dietary needs for a productive and healthy life. A family is food secure when its members do not live in hunger or fear of hunger. So how do food security and climate change relate? Ensuring food security is also part of sustainable development goals which targets zero hunger. In this episode, we'll be unpacking the effects of climate change and food security in the sub-Saharan region in the African continent and have a view of what the future holds to ensure zero hunger and sustainable availability of food in the continent. According to the latest available data from the World Food Programme, it's estimated that at least 135 million people suffer from acute hunger due to man-made conflicts, climate change being one of them, and economic downturns. And also 144 million children under the age of five were affected by stunted growth in 2019, with at least three quarters living in Southern Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, which is the main focus of our podcast today. So to help us understand why Africa is unable to fully eradicate hunger and achieve food security, we invited an expert who has not only been talking but also writing about Africa's effects of climate change and food security. And this expert is Yvonne Gidiora. Yvonne Gidiora is a Mawazo Learning Exchange Fellow at the Mawazo Institute and a PhD candidate at the University of Nairobi's Institute for Climate Change and Adaptation in Kenya. Welcome, Yvonne. Thank you for having me here today, Joy. Just as an introduction, as you said, I am a Mawazo Learning Exchange Fellow and a PhD student at the University of Nairobi, where my work looks at uh, participatory approaches to assess the impacts of different drivers of change on ecosystem services in Yala Wetland. I am also a research fellow at the African Climate and Environment Center Future African Savannas Project where my work applies the lessons learned in Yala wetland to understand wetland ecosystems in African savannas. Looking at your work, we see that your research focuses on the link between communities and ecosystems and how scientific information can be used to inform the development planning and processes. This sounds so interesting. Would you tell us what drew you to your work? When I was young, I always had a love of nature and animals, and I actually wanted to be a vet, but when I grew up, I veered slightly left of that. I studied an undergrad and a master's in conservation biology. Then after that, I worked in public policy analysis for a government think tank. But along the way, I'd also developed an interest in ecosystem services because they form a very good bridge between human communities and the ecosystem. Then for my PhD, I went into climate change because it's a very focal issue for our time. Mm -hmm. And it also falls within that interface and it's having very massive impacts on human communities and ecosystems. 
Your research explores ecosystem services. Why ecosystem services? And for someone who does not know, how would you explain on what is an ecosystem service? So ecosystem services are basically, a very basic definition is that they are the benefits that we get from nature. So the benefits that human communities get from nature. Uh, they've been classified, one of the well-known classification systems is from the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment that was carried out in 2005 by the UN. And it classified ecosystem services into four categories. So provisioning services are the provision of goods that are actually used by people. So for example, food, fresh water, fuel, fiber, and so on, medicinal plants. Then we have regulating services. Those are the ones that regulate the quality of the ecosystem. So things like climate regulation, water quality regulation, pollination services, and so on. Then we have the supporting services, the ones that underlie some of these other services like soil formation and nutrient recycling. And then finally, we have the cultural services, which include education, cultural heritage, spiritual sites, tourism, and so on. Narrowing down to our topic of today, which is food security, how can you correlate the ecosystem services to food security, especially based on your project on Rivayala wetland? So ecosystem services are vital to achieving all the sustainable development goals, including um, goal two, which is zero hunger. Mm -hmm. So when you look at across the sustainable development goals, ecosystem services actually contribute to several of them. So I'll just take an example of, for example, the no poverty. When you're looking at building the resilience of the poor as one of the targets, you're looking at ensuring that all people have equal rights to and access to resources. Ecosystem services are very much a part of that. But specifically looking at the zero hunger sustainable development goal, some of the targets include doubling agricultural productivity and incomes for small scale producers, ensuring sustainable food production systems and so on. So a lot of these small-scale producers actually rely directly on ecosystems in order to make have their livelihoods and get their food and so on. So you can see a very direct link between the services that are being provided by the ecosystem and the ability to actually have money in your pocket, feed your family and so on. Ecosystem services also directly support the three pillars of food security, which are availability, access and utilization. So just thinking about availability, the ecosystem services that support food production, things like soil health, water availability, biodiversity, which promotes genetic variety of crops that supports the availability of food. Then access is supported through the provision of natural resources that are used to enhance livelihoods and income, as I've just mentioned. When people have money in their pocket, then they are better able to access that food. Then finally, the utilization, where the production of resources for safe and sanitary food preparation. So, for example, having clean water to wash your vegetables and so on is part of the utilization. So you can see the direct link between ecosystem services, the SDGs with a focus on zero hunger, and then now the pillars of food security. Thank you, Yvonne, for mentioning water availability, because this brings me to... Another question, having had a look at your, your other research work that you've done on water poverty, it's clear that there's a gap between water availability and water access. What can be done to bridge the gap between water availability, water access, sustainable utilization in order to ensure that we actually have food security? 
I think the first step would be to understand maybe the difference because water availability refers to the water that's actually in the natural ecosystem and water access refers to what the water that people are actually getting. So normally there's a link between that that is sometimes missing. You might find areas where the water is actually available, like the catchment areas. The water access to the local community can be low, but yet that water can be being used in another place, like a big city. Nairobi is a good example. We don't have our own water sources, but we get them from the surrounding catchments and we get the water piped into our homes. So I think it's important to understand that distinction, to understand that the water availability in the natural ecosystem is very much impacted by things like how the land is being used, whether you're protecting the catchment area, factors such as climate change. Then the water access is more to do with the infrastructure to actually get the water to the people. So when you're thinking about sustainable utilization, you have to think about both conserving the catchment, so the system where the water is coming from, and also ensuring that you have equitable access to the the people both in the catchment and in other areas. Uh, also ensuring that it reaches the marginalized and poor communities, preventing things like water losses, which are a big issue, especially in places like Kenya. So you look at the whole system, you look at using it wisely, where it's actually being accessed, as well as managing it in that pipeline and conserving it at the source. How does understanding ecosystem services and using participatory approaches, as you had mentioned earlier in your introduction, help us make better decisions about managing our landscapes for people and nature? Because it seems like all of them are correlating. Yeah, definitely. So the participatory approaches actually try to provide a bridge between the two. So you're trying to understand the ecosystem services being generated by the ecosystem, how they are being used by the local community. And then my work also tries to ensure that it really elevates the voice of that stakeholder, the local community, to understand, for example, in my study area, how exactly are you using the wetland? What kind of resources are you getting from it? There have been other studies done there, for example, looking at the value of fishing and farming. But for me, I wanted specifically to look at the spatial aspects as well. So mapping how the community are using it, mapping how those changes have happened within the past 30 or so years and trying to look at future scenarios of how ecosystem services will look in Yala wetland in the future. The future is uncertain for sure and we cannot always predict it. But you have used scenarios as part of your research work to explore alternative future pathways of change. So what's your opinion on this approach in terms of ensuring food security in the future? Okay, so you've just mentioned that scenarios normally bring out alternative pathways of change. And that's very key because I said the future is very uncertain. So when we're looking into the future, we are not sure how processes will react. And normally they don't react in a linear manner. So you find there are a lot of interactions and changes that we might not anticipate. For example, just a few years ago, we didn't anticipate something like the COVID pandemic coming up. So scenarios are very useful when you're thinking about the future because it allows you to think about all these things. You think about things like climate change you might not know the exact we have our climate change projections but we don't know the exact outcome of it at the end 
We have our policies that we are working on at the moment in environment and other sectors, but we don't know how those will change the future and how the interactions will be. So that's basically what scenarios try to do. You come up with those alternative storylines of the future. You can either, there are different types of scenarios which I won't go into, but you can, for example, look at the different outcomes of a policy that you have right now. You can also try to think about a policy and then work backwards and see what the impacts might be. You can also think about those uncertain processes like climate change and how they might act in the future and come up with different storylines of the future. And then for my work, because my scenarios were very participatory, that's another way of thinking about the future. You sit with the community and you think about what the future of their ecosystem will be and come up with those storylines based on different factors such as policies, such as maybe development continuing at this pace versus maybe conservation. So it's a very useful way to think about the future and try to map out all those uncertain outcomes. What is your big idea for how your research can impact the communities you work with? My big idea is basically the use of participatory approaches. There are many development plans that are ongoing in different parts of the world, and especially for us in the developing world. There are always policies and plans that are developed to push the country forward. But sometimes you find that the plans are either developed without adequate input of the community or without adequate understanding of the ecosystem on which that development rests. So basically my work tries to bring those ideas together, trying to understand the ecosystem and how the community actually view it. Yala Wetland is a place where that has been really targeted for large-scale agriculture as part of the country's development agenda. So I think it's really useful to understand how these processes are impacting on the actual users of the wetland so that we can now plan for the future because in the future they'll still be there in the wetland and we need to ensure that we don't compromise their livelihoods in the future. Thank you so much, Yvonne. That's one of the big ideas that are going to be used for the good of not only the River Yala wetland, your community that you work with, but as well as the continent at large. To continue with this conversation, we have another expert with us, Mason Osman, who is going to expound on the topic climate change and food security, but now narrowing down to crop production. Mason Osman is a Mawazo Learning Exchange Fellow at the Mawazo Institute and a PhD student at the Institute of Climate Change and Adaptation at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. Welcome to the show, Mason. Uh, thank you so much. Hello to everyone listening in. My name is Mason Osman. I'm from Sudan. I'm a PhD student attached to the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology, known as ECP. I registered at the, uh, the Institute for Climate Change and Adaptation, University of Nairobi. I'm also Mwazo Learning Exchange Fellow. Back home, I'm a lecturer at the Faculty of Forest Sciences and Technology of University of Jazeera. It's good to have you on the show, Mason. Could you briefly tell us about your PhD research? What motivated you to take that direction? My research looking at how climate change has been influencing crop protection. So we have uh, climate change going on at a global scale. So my research looking at a specific area in Sudan. So yes, I'm working on the impact of climate change on crop protection at small-scale farming system, in particular rain feed sector in Gadarif state in Sudan. 
So you know, Kadarif region is considered as a food basket for the whole Sudan. Mm -hmm. And this due to the fact that the uh, region receives the highest amount of rain, mm -hmm. it has a very fertile soil, and this allows the production of many food and cash crops like uh, sorghum, sesame, millet, and cotton. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, this situation is no longer there. Mm -hmm. Farmers in this region experience extreme climatic events mm -hmm. like uh, flood, drought, irregular rain patterns, mm -hmm. unpredictable uh, onset of the rainy season. So, and this resulted in uh, land degradation, use of soil fertility and the outbreak of uh, crop, insect, pests and diseases. So the combination of all these factors led to a massive reduction of yield, rising the price of sorghum, which is a key stable food in Sudan. Mm -hmm. And you see where the problem is, is that that region used to produce one set of sorghum that produced in Sudan. In such situation, men left the farms because they are no longer profitable leaving the women with the double job of taking care of the families and farming. So that was really motivated me to look in a potential solution for such problems. So I conceptualized my work in the area of the impact of climate change on food security. In specific, my research aims to use satellite remote sensing data to assess the impact of climate change on crop production and also how it impacted the land use for small-scale farming. What are some of the effects of climate change on food security that you are seeing in the areas you work in? You see, uh, there is one thing that we all have to agree about, is that climate change is real and is no longer a piece of news. Our planet's climate is changing and this is undeniable. So climate change presents a formidable challenge to the farmers who produce our food. So also climate change affects uh, food dimensions like food availability, food affordability, access to food, food quality, as well as increase the cost of production. So yes, what I would say is that climate change could affect everyone in different sectors. But let me narrow it down to the crop production as is a topic I'm researching and also the sector which food security mostly depends on. So if we take Sub-Saharan Africa as an example, the crop productivity due to climate change is protected to decline by up to 20% by 2080, as reported by Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. Also, under the worst climatic condition, the reduction of key foods in Africa like maize and sorghum is estimated to range between 8% to 30%, and this will increase the vulnerability of rural communities in a such way that it reduces the human and physical capital and poor agricultural infrastructure. So, you know, Joy, some people in some communities would not afford to buy their essential food stuff, especially with this COVID-19 pandemic, which is also considerably affected uh, food affordability. So, as I mentioned earlier, climate change will not only affect food quantity will also will affect food quality. For example, under extreme climatic events, food biosafety could highly affect it along crop production value chain. Having mentioned uh, some of the effects of climate change on food security that you've seen in the area of work, what are some of the innovative ways of measuring this impact? You know, to assess the impact of climate change on food security, firstly, we need to know the indicators of climate change itself. 
So, as I have mentioned earlier, climate change indicators include increased temperature and variable rain, among others. So, the influence of uh, these indicators can vary from one sector to another, like agriculture, biodiversity, water, health, settlement, etc. So, for the agriculture sector, which is the backbone of food security in sub-Saharan Africa, with this uh, revolution of technology, data and cross-cutting modeling tools, there are many innovative ways of measuring climate change indicators. One of these uh, innovations is the use of satellite remote sensing data. This provides efficient and sufficient inputs to monitor climate change, which directly affect crop production. Recently, there is a number of satellite systems that can provide near real-time information that can improve our understanding of the impact of climate change on food security. With the readily available petabyte of satellite images, machine learning, artificial intelligence processing tools, we can universally assess the impact of climate change at different scales. Having mentioned the innovative ways of measuring the impact, how do we acquire such data for you? You know, there is a number of global agencies like NASA, European Space Agency, Australian Space Agency, that they have continuously provided satellite data since 1970. So also now it became like a competition to the space, even within the continent. Every country is trying to put its, uh, its fingerprint in the space. I know so many countries have already launched satellites, like uh, within Africa, Nigeria has launched, Ethiopia uh, has launched, uh, South Africa has launched, my country, Sudan, not yet launched, but I'm not sure about Kenya. So uh, there is a plenty of data nowadays so we can we can immediately use them for climate change assessment since climate change assessment requires long-term observation at least 30 years so yes such satellite data are currently being used to assess the impact of climate change or food security also there is a uh, many global and continental alliances like uh, global agriculture geomonitoring initiative uh, which known as uh, JUGLAM, and African Group on Earth Observation, uh, which known as uh, AfroGeo, that utilize satellite data to measure the indicators of food security. In addition to artificial intelligence, in the recent past, there is a multidisciplinary approach. All scientists coming together from different backgrounds, like physicists, mathematicians, computer and GIS scientists, to develop more strong systems. So such information is critical for determining food production, and it can also serve as essential measure for agriculture planning and management to ensure food security for all. So considering the constraints that you have highlighted earlier, Mason, in your opinion, what could be the optimal adaptation measures? What I would say is that adaptation measures can take uh, many shapes and forms, depending on the context of the community or the country or the region. So there is no one size fits all. So adaptation measures include, but not limited to, setting up early warning system, soil conservation, rotation, rainwater harvesting, and also redesigning government policy to integrate climate change measures into a national policies, strategies, and planning. There is another important adaptation measure I would really like to mention is climate smart push-pull technology, which has been developed and upscaled by ECB across sub-Saharan Africa. 
So in 2020, this technology has been adopted by over 260,000 maize growers. And I'm sure by now, much more farmers have adopted this technology. So I would conclude with that successful adaptation measures not only depend on governments, but also we should involve the affected farmers and other relevant stakeholders in decision making. This brings me to my last question. What do you hope will be the impact of your PhD findings on food security in Sudan? Uh, you know, in my PhD research, I found that in Qadarif region, Sudan, annual maximum temperature has increased by 0.03 degrees Celsius per year. And minimum temperature increased by 0.05 degrees Celsius per year over the last 35 years. So this increment has led to crop yield reduction of over half kg per hectare. Also, annual rainfall was considerably fluctuated. So uh, my PhD findings could be used to support awareness creation among different stakeholders and policymakers on the impact of climate change on food security. My findings also would uh, underline the need for resource allocation to support the uptake of adaptation measures that ensure resilience among agricultural communities. Also, my findings could be used by the extension officers to advise the farmers to the use of upscale adaptation measures to mitigate the negative impacts of climate change. Hence, this would help to increase food production and decrease the price of food, which will lead to livelihood improvement and achieve food security, not only at small-scale farming, but also at community scale. And this will help to achieve zero hunger, which is one of United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So from a personal perspective, as a young African woman, my capacity on the use of satellite remote sensing tools has been highly enhanced, making me among few women in Sudan to acquire such cutting-edge knowledge. As always, when we come to the end of the podcast, we will always ask our guests what is their big idea. So Mason, what is your big idea for how your research can impact the communities you work with, not only in the Gedarif state in Sudan, but also at a global level. What we need to be thinking of is how we build resilience and biodiversity in agricultural sector so that we are not uh, in this very vulnerable single modality. What I mean here, like in my country, Sudan, the majority of population depend on sorghum as a main staple food. Also here in Kenya, I've seen some uh, the majority of population depend on maize. So we really need to think about this to ensure that hunger will not be the next global pandemic. As we all work towards ensuring we have zero hunger, it's also my hope that we are going to achieve food security, especially in the sub-Saharan region. And thank you for coming to the podcast. I would like to thank you for giving me this opportunity to talk about this pressing issue of climate change on food security. And I would like also to thank the International Center of Insect Physiology and Ecology, ECP, and in particular, Data Management, Modeling, and Information Unit, for, and the Institute for Climate Change and Adaptation, University of Nairobi, and Faculty of Forest Sciences and Technology, University of Jazeera and Sudan, and Moazu Institute for supporting my PhD in one way or another. 
to our lovely audience um, to find out more about our guests, find links to the information shared in the episode, or listen again. You can find us permanently on the Nairobi Ideas podcast page. This is at mawazoinstitute.org backslash podcast. You can also subscribe to the Nairobi Ideas podcast on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nairobi Ideas podcast is brought to you by the Mawazo Institute, a Nairobi-based research organization focused on female thought leadership and public engagement with research. New episodes drop once a week on Thursdays. Till then, from all of us here at Mawazo Institute, bye and keep it nerdy.